Good morning, everybody, and welcome to First Presbyterian Church. We are glad that you are with us. I just want to take the time now to welcome you and also to call your attention to a couple of announcements that you'll find in your bulletin. Uh, please take the time to read through them. We have all kinds of ladies' activities going on in terms of Bible studies and circles. We have a missions committee meeting this afternoon at 3 if you'd like to attend that. Um, also, midweek... Uh, Wednesday night Bible study and dinner time begins this week, so we'd invite you out to that. Uh, thank you for your prayers. It looks like the Family Life Building and the renovations that are taking place there are going to be finished so that we can move over there and have plenty of space and have dinner. So uh, 545 on Wednesday night, we'd love for you uh, to be there with us. I am going to be teaching the adult Bible study on the subject of marriage and family. It should be be a good time. So with that, again, welcome. Let's take a few moments to uh, sit here quietly and prepare our hearts to worship the Lord God.
Would you please stand for the call to worship this morning from Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Would you please pray with me? God, we are here to praise you. You have commanded us to praise you, and you also give us reason to praise you for who you are in your faithfulness and your great love towards us. So would you send your spirit this morning to empower this worship service so that we can praise you in spirit and in truth. Do these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would remain standing, we'll sing our first hymn this morning, which is hymn 243, Praise the Savior Now and Ever. Let's sing hymn 243. If you would take your bulletins, we'll continue in our worship service with the Confession of Faith, which is the Apostles' Creed. We believe the Apostles' Creed is a good summary of what God teaches us about Himself and about the world and about salvation through His Word. So I'll ask, believer, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. 
he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. I have the privilege of leading us in prayer this morning, and then when I'm through with leading in prayer, we'll pray together the Lord's Prayer. So would you please bow your heads with me, and we'll pray together. Dear Lord, your name is above every other name on earth or in heaven. You've set your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have more than enough strength to quiet the enemy and the avenger, as your word says. And when we look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, we ask, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And dear Father, we know that this psalm is first about Jesus, and then it's about us. And you've made your son a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Father, you have left nothing outside Jesus' control. And at present, we don't see everything in connection to him. But we see Jesus this morning, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. God, we know it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons and daughters to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Lord, your name is majestic in all the earth. You have shown incredible love to us and to your created people. And when we think about you in comparison to the decisions we make in our daily lives, we can look at our decisions and see how foolish and silly they really are when we turn away from you. Your compassion and your power are always near to us, yet we go our own way. We shut you out. We fight temptations in our own power. And so we pray, Lord, that you would restore us, that you would restore our faith and our trust in you, that you would give us eyes to see your greatness and your glory, your work in this world and in our lives. Lord, as we, some of us have seen the news, we pray that you would bring your great rescuing power to the people in Morocco, that you would save lives, that you would protect the injured, and that you would comfort the grieving after that earthquake. Lord, I pray uh, for my personal friend, Aaron. I pray you would give 
light to her path as she grapples with the unexpected loss of her father. Would you bless her family as they weep and give them great expectation of the resurrection that is to come? Lord, would you be honored this morning in this worship service by what we say, by what we think, by what we sing, by the word preached. Would you give great power to your word as it is preached through Pastor Heath and anoint this time, we pray, by your spirit. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, and we ask that you would lead us in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
Please pray with me. God, even now you are working throughout the world and you are using our tithes and offerings uh, to do amazing things, to show love to people who are in need, to provide for people who are in need. So God, would you continue to do that and would you bless these tithes and offerings that we give this morning for your glory and for your work around the world and in Louisville. We pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would remain standing, we'll continue worshiping with him through 535, which is high, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Oh the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus, which is him 535. Let's sing together.
Well, I'd invite you all to turn with me now to the third chapter of the book of Genesis for our scripture reading. We're continuing our series uh, through the book of Genesis, I entitled Reenchanting the World, and today we are going to look at the fall of man and uh, God's response to man in that fall, uh, which will really be the first of many falls for mankind, but this is where it all begins. Now before I read this chapter, let me pray for us. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the deep, deep love of Jesus that we've just sung about. Uh, We're taught from the cradle, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, but yet it's still so hard for us as sinners to believe. So would you cause the love of Christ to be shed abroad in our hearts today? Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to accept what you would say to us through your holy and inspired word? For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We are going to read the entirety of Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who is with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And this ends this reading of God's word. Um, this is the text of Scripture that God used to call me out of hiding and to himself uh, in the year 2000, long, long time ago. And I thought I could spend the next year preaching through Genesis 3, or we could try to knock it out in one shot. So we're going to spend one week on it, though we did look briefly at it last week and it, i'm and it's you know i'm half joking but i'm not really joking when i say we could we could spend a year in this passage because genesis 3 is a microcosm of the world we live in it's a microcosm of the human condition of the human situation like isaac newton looked at an apple and he could see gravity he could see the planets he could see the sun the moon and the stars all in that one little item in genesis we get genesis 3 we get everything. We get to see the wiles of Satan, the origin of sin, the result of sin, God's plan for mankind. We get to see who God is. We get to see who we are. And the main thing you see about man in this passage after the fall is that his first response after he sins, after he eats of the fruit, after he messes up, is to hide from God. The God whom he was created to have fellowship with is the God whom he is now hiding from. It's insanity to try to hide from someone who knows everything and sees everything. But millennia later, we're still trying to do it. Mankind is still trying to hide from God and cover ourselves up with every fig leaf that we can come up with. You may have heard the story of C.S. Lewis's conversion uh, to Christ, as, and he was an older man when this happened, but when he describes it, he says, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, key phrase, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That's Adam 
and Eve in our passage. That's C.S. Lewis. That's the human condition. The steady, unrelenting approach of someone we don't want to meet. That's how we view God. But Lewis found out that he wasn't truly hiding from God. He was hiding from a God who was the figment of his imagination. Not the true God. He continues, I did not then when he saw this impending doom approaching him. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing. The divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And God's compulsion is our liberation. See, he says, I was hiding from this God of doom and judgment, and what I found was a God of love who is willing to accept a prodigal who's trying to get away, who's trying to run away. What we see in Genesis 3 is that the human condition, us hiding from God, really happens because we don't see the most shining and obvious thing. That this God of the garden is a God of love and grace, that he's a God who welcomes sinners and offers forgiveness and hope to those who may feel unforgivable and hopeless. And you see this so clearly in this story, and it's really what I want us to see today. What I saw when I sat alone in a room myself over 20 years ago dealing with this God of Genesis 3. Three points. I want us to see the sound of God's grace, the walk of God's grace, and the tree of God's grace for hiding sinners. So first, the sound of God's grace, verse 8 of our passage. It says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You know, John Newton's first words to amazing grace. What are they? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Never thought about that phrase before until this past week. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What's the sound in verse 8? It's the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That phrase, cool of the day, has been vigorously debated throughout church history of exactly what it means because in Hebrew it's literally the spirit of the day which has caused some people to interpret the phrase to mean that God is showing up here in judgment. It's the day of the Lord. It's the spirit of God coming in anger and wrath to bring judgment down on sinful Adam and Eve. It's a mini apocalypse. God's showing up in a whirlwind. And that would make sense of why Adam and Eve try to hide themselves. But there's a problem with that interpretation. First off, aside from the word sound being used to describe what God is doing here, the chapter is full of references to God's speech. It starts with the serpent questioning and attacking God's speech. You notice that's his method of attack to Adam and Eve. Did God actually say, Genesis 1 and 2, they're full of, and God said, and God said, and God said, over and over, and the serpent comes attacking God's speech. Then from verse 9 onward, there are seven references to God speaking in Genesis 3. So what did we learn from Genesis 1 and 2? Well, A, that God's speech is creative. It brings new realities into existence. It creates. Also, that God's speech 
points to Christ, who the New Testament calls the Logos, the Word. And everything God says in this chapter, despite what you may think on first superficial level reading, everything God says in this chapter is dripping with grace to Adam and Eve. He is extraordinarily kind to Adam and Eve in this passage. The, the first thing God says to Adam, verse 9, it says, The Lord God called to the man who's hiding, right, and says what? Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So that question, where are you? Um, here's a little, little bit of deep theology for you. God actually knows where Adam and Eve are. This is not a, a surprise to him. It's not that he doesn't know where they are. He wants Adam to think about where Adam is. That's the point. Derek Kidner, uh, the commentator, says, God's first word to fallen man has all the marks of grace. It is a question. Uh, since to help Adam, God must draw Adam out of hiding rather than drive Adam out of hiding. He's drawing Adam out with searching questions. In God's words to Adam and Eve, he's drawing them out, inviting them to think about where they are and what they've done. This is why this chapter hit me so hard as a, as a young man years ago. Because I knew nothing about the Bible. I picked up a Bible. I started reading it. That's a long story I won't get into today. But, you know, at 19 years old, I already had a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and certainly a lot of sin but I didn't know that. I didn't know what that was. That nagging guilty conscience, I didn't know there was actually a name for that. I just thought I was messed up. And I'm reading Genesis 3 and I see that this man and the woman, they cover themselves with fig leaves and they hide themselves from God and they, their eyes are open and they know that they're naked. And I went, aha, that's my life. I'm hiding from God. It's not just that I'm just messed up, that I'm more messed up than anybody else. It's that this is the universal condition. God used this chapter and he said to me, Adam and Eve, no, Heath, you are that man. You've done the exact same thing. You know, there are preachers who don't like to preach about sin. And sin is treated like it's a four-letter word. Uh, because, you know, it, it gets people down, it makes people feel guilty and the like. You know, that's not what sin, the concept, the biblical concept of sin is not about that at all. If approached rightly, a true understanding of sin can help you make sense of your life. There's, there was a line in the uh, classic book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, that said in modern times, and this was years ago he wrote it, so it's even more so now, but he said in modern times, you know, men and women come to church to try to get some inspiration, to try to be enlivened. They want to be encouraged and strengthened and go out feeling good about themselves and the like. And he said, you know, that's not the way it was at all in the ancient church. Men and women used to come to church to receive a rationale for their misery. What did he mean by a rationale for their misery? It sounds depressing, right? But it's not at all. The point is, we came to help, to allow God to make sense of our lives, to explain to us why there is sin, why there is suffering, why our souls are out of order, why we feel the way we do all of the time. Our condition as humans isn't primarily about nature versus nurture or psychology or societal pressure, or the, you know, whatever's going on, the spirit of the age. It's primarily about the fact that we have rebelled against God. And we're continuing to rebel against God and hide from Him. 
And in our rebellion, amazing grace, how sweet the sound happens when God shows up and says, where are you? What have you done? And you open yourself up to him and you confess that you've been trying to cover up and hide. That's the first point, the sound of grace. Secondly, I want us to think about the walk of grace. The second reason I don't think God showing up in, in the garden is an act of wrath is that Adam and Eve hear the sound of God walking in the garden. Walking, key phrase. That should kind of make you think, wait a minute, what's going on here? God is a spirit and hath not a body like man, as the catechism says. So how on earth is he walking? With what legs is he walking? And the commentators note that the way we're to understand this is it is a theophany or a Christophany, which is just a fancy word to say it's God showing up in human form. It's God showing up in a way that uh, he becomes visible and makes sound. The Scottish church had an old saying that Jesus liked to try on the clothes of his incarnation before he ever became a man. And that's what we have happening in this passage. Uh, as Jonathan Edwards wrote, when we read in sacred history what God did from time to time towards his church and people and how he revealed himself to them, we are to understand it especially as the second person of the Trinity. When we read of God appearing after the fall in some visible form, we are ordinarily, if not universally, to understand it as the second person of the Trinity. This has been what commentators and theologians have believed from the beginning. When God shows up visibly, when he appears, it is the second person of the Trinity. The Lord Jesus Christ, in pre-incarnate, before he had a body, showing up visibly. Revelation 13.8 calls Jesus Christ the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Now this is what's amazing. In the plan and decree of God, before Adam and Eve ever sinned and ever fell, Jesus Christ was already crucified. That plan, that wasn't some whim thousands of years later that God came up with. That was the plan from the beginning. Now think about this. This lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world is the very one who's showing up in the garden in this confrontation with Adam and Eve to say, where are you? What have you done? Now, there's no way that doesn't completely change the way that you look at the passage, if you think of it that way. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, is cursing the serpent, telling him that one of Eve's children is going to crush his head. That child was already there in the garden, only he wasn't a child yet. He was the one who walked in the garden, the one who made the promise was going to be the one who would become a human to fulfill the promise. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, after the resurrection of Christ, when Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20, Jesus said to her, John 20, 15, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take, a, I will take him away. She supposed him to be the gardener. And at first reading, you think, what is she? Well, you know what? This is the gardener. This is the God 
who planted the Garden of Eden all the way back in the, Genesis, in the book of Genesis, resurrected from the dead, having crushed the head of the serpent through his death and resurrection, here he is appearing in his resurrected glory. And The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton, difficult book to read, but a wonderful book. I never looked at this passage the same after reading that book. Chesterton said, On the third day, the friends of Christ, coming at daybreak to the place, found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth. And in semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden in the cool not of the evening, but of the dawn. Jesus Christ, the God who draws Adam and Eve out of hiding, the God who clothes them, the God who promises victory over Satan, becomes a man in order to fill, fulfill that promise. And we're to hear the sound of him walking in the garden, and it sounds like amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So that's the grace of his walk. Lastly, let's talk about the tree of God's grace. Verse 22 of our passage. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So after God draws the man out of hiding, he drives him out of the garden. And it's the beginning of one of the central themes in the Bible, which is exile. But notice why God drives the man out. Verse 22. Lest he reach out his hand, lest Adam reach out his hand, and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. John MacArthur comments on this. God barred man from the tree of life. Why? Because if man ate from the tree of life, he would live forever. He would live forever in his sin, in a cursed world, in a fallen world with sweat and thorns and thistles and pain and childbearing. If Adam reaches out and eats from the tree of life, there's no end to it. He lives forever. Adam had just seen an animal slaughtered. The first death recorded in Scripture. He knows now what death looks like. And of course he's not going to want to die. Of course he's going to be tempted to try to live forever. But he'd live in a fallen world forever, in a pain-stricken body forever. Great, great children's story, which really is an adult story, but Tuck Everlasting. The Tucks drank from the fountain of youth, essentially. They drank the water that would cause them to live forever and not to age. Imagine being doomed to be a teenager forever. Yeah, I wouldn't want that. Jesse Tuck meets Winnie, and he's drank from the water. He's going to live forever. And he wants Winnie, you know, of course he's interested in Winnie, he wants her to drink from the water and live forever with him. Angus Tuck, the father, the wise father, he says to Winnie at one point, you can't have living without dying. 
So you can't call it living what we got. We just are. We just be. Like rocks beside the road. Dying's a part of life. Right there next to being born. You can't pick out the pieces you like and leave the rest. Being part of the whole thing, that's the blessing. And the tension of the story is, will Winnie choose to drink from the water and therefore live on and on in perpetual youth? Well, Winnie and the Tucks go their separate ways, and in the final scene, Angus Tuck stands at Winnie's tombstone. It says, slowly Tuck turned his footsteps toward the monument and saw as he approached there were other smaller markers around it. It was a family plot, and then his throat closed, for it was there. He wanted it to be there, but now that he saw it, he was overcome with sadness. He knelt and read the inscription, in loving memory, Winifred Foster Jackson, dear wife, dear mother, 1870 through 1948. So Tuck said to himself, two years. She's been gone two years. Tuck wiped his eyes hastily. Then he straightened his jacket and drew up his hand in a brief salute. Good girl, he said aloud. Then he turned and left the cemetery. Why good girl, Winnie? Because Winnie came to see that immortality wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Not for a sinner. See, God is giving Adam and Eve the gift of physical death so that they don't have to live in a body of death forever. Because evil is like interest. The longer you live, the more it compounds. Imagine being 700 years old and having to deal with all that accumulated guilt and shame of a 700-year-old. Imagine being a perpetual teenager and dealing with that anxiety and that awkwardness and all that comes with it forever. Time is a gift. Yes, death is a penalty for sin. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, it's a gift because this pain, this ache in our skulls and this guilt in our souls and our consciences, it doesn't have to go on forever. And knowing this is what gave Christians and what gives Christians the power to wash their hands in the flame when they're being burned at the stake to lay down their lives, to not run away from the scarlet fever when everyone around you is dying, going in and helping those who are suffering because you're not afraid to die, because you know there's something beyond death that's greater than what we have here. Why? Because we have another tree, a tree of grace. Satan tempted the man to take and eat. Derek Kidner says, God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. Now Jesus Christ, who died on that cursed tree, cursed is anyone who dies on a tree of the cross, offers us his body and blood and says, take, eat, and live forever. But we're not going to live forever in these sin-wracked bodies, in these painful bodies, these bodies that weep tears of sorrow over all the evil and, and pain in the world. But instead, he offers us resurrection. Resurrection. I like to say we're going to trade these in for a major upgrade. We're going to trade these bodies in for a major upgrade. You know, C.S. Lewis has a little quote that I've 
loved for years, where he says resurrection is more profound than immortality. Because if resurrection is the end goal, if that's where we're headed, that means we're, we serve a God who is the God of happy endings, who is the God of sudden turns, a God who can change everything in an instant, right now in the blink of an eye. He can change whatever situation you're facing. And so this God that you may be hiding from today is actually the God of grace and mercy he want, who wants to give you a new beginning. Fred Craddock tells a story that when he was a little boy in West Tennessee, he and his sister would play hide-and-seek regularly, and he took great joy in winning those hide-and-seek matches. But he said one day he found a really good hiding spot. under the He had to crawl under the front porch of their home, and it was such a good hiding spot that he heard his sister walking by, and he heard his sister saying, Freddie, where are you? And he realized, she's actually not going to find me. And so he thinks to himself, what am I going to do here under this porch forever? And so he stuck his hand out just a little bit from under the porch, and he asks, why do you think I stuck my hand out? Why do you think I did that? Let us pray. Father, thank you for amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saves wretches like us. We once were lost, but now are found. We're blind, but now we see. Father, if there is anyone here today who is still blind and is still lost, I pray that you would open your eyes and that you would find them. And even for those of us who have been Christians for decades, there are still parts of ourselves that we are hiding from you, parts of ourselves that we don't want you involved in, parts of our lives that we don't want you involved in. Would you give us a, such a powerful sense of your grace today that we would be able to open our souls nakedly up to you and say, Father, come and dwell in our hearts by faith. Help us to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. And let's stand together and sing hymn number 460, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound.
Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as we continue this, our short earthly pilgrimage. Amen.